Um, well, so that was The Wanderer, sung by Johnny Cash, written by U2. And Johnny Cash, of course, is kind of a, a larger-than-life figure in music. Uh, kind of hard to pin down. You know, do, you, do you call him a, a rock and roll star, a country star? What is he? He looms large over multiple genres. And, and part of the, the compelling thing about Johnny Cash is not just the, the deep baritone voice and uh, kind of the, the depth of the lyrics and the fact that he's so hard to pin down in any one genre. It's also his life, right? His, his life story is, is compelling. He's not a squeaky clean figure, whether it's his, his struggle with addiction, his multiple run-ins with the law. But then there's also the advocacy work he's done for, for prison reform and, and Native Americans. There's the, the kind of growth and development you see throughout his career where there's this deepening faith that plays out in many different facets of his life. He's a, a flawed hero in a lot of ways. Someone to look up to who's made an undeniable imprint on our culture. But he's got some chinks in the armor. And he knows it. And he's honest about it. And it's part of what makes his, his song so rich. It makes, it's what makes him resonate so much with us. He's flawed. Well, this week we're beginning a series where we're looking at another larger-than-life figure who looms large over lots of different genres of religion. Uh, that's Abraham. We're calling it the Wanderer. Uh, we're looking at this, this individual that we find in the book of Genesis in the Bible who has had such a, a, an impact on our, our world that the three major monotheistic religions all trace their origin back to him. Christianity, Islam, Judaism are all called Abrahamic religions because they trace their origins back to this guy, Abraham. And in a lot of ways, like Johnny Cash... He's this kind of larger-than-life hero who's also a deeply flawed person. And as we come to Abraham's story, it's, it's the story of someone who's learning what it means to journey with God, but his flaws are on full, disp full display for us to see and for us to learn from. And so over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at these stories from the life of Abraham. And we're going to be asking what we can learn as people who are flawed on a journey with God and with others as well. So before we do, uh, a little bit of background, uh, because Abraham's story is placed in a larger story. So it's in the book of Genesis. Again, the, it's the first book you come to in the Old Testament in the Bible. And it's, it's pretty early on. It's like we get to the end of chapter 11 is where we'll start, we'll start today. But prior to that, in the book of Genesis, what we see is that humanity is kind of in trouble. Things are, are going a little sideways. That God, as, as Matt had prayed earlier, that, that human beings were created in God's image to reflect God's likeness, to live in love with God and with others. And it turns out we're really, really bad at it. That again and again, people keep making really poor choices, rebellious, selfish choices that lead us away from relationship with God 
away from others, often in conflict with others. And again and again in this early section of Genesis, God has to keep kind of intervening to to straighten things out. And right before we meet Abraham, we hear that humanity is kind of in trouble again. We hear that people have been spread throughout the entire world. They're, They're disconnected, disconnected from God, disconnected from one another. And so God once again intervenes, but this time it's through a particular person in the midst of a particular family that's going through a a bit of a crisis. So we're going to pick up this morning uh, reading in Genesis chapter 11 towards the end. If, If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, the scriptures will be up on the screen. But we're going to read out of Genesis 11 starting in verse 27. This is where we get introduced to Abraham. The author writes, This is the account of Terah's family. Terah was the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran was the father of Lot. But Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, the land of his birth, while his father Terah was still living. Meanwhile, Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. Milcah and her sister Iscah were daughters of Nahor's brother Haran. But Sarai was unable to become pregnant and had no children. One day, Terah took his son, Abram, his daughter-in-law, Sarai, his son, Abram's wife, and his grandson, Lot, his son, Haran's child, and moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was headed for the land of Canaan, but they stopped at Haran and settled there. Terah lived for 205 years and died while still in Haran. All right. So the first question you might be asking as you listen to that read, as you read that on the screen, is, I thought his name was Abraham. What's up with, like, is that a a misprint? Like, what's up with Abram? Was I wrong? Have we all just been pronouncing it wrong this whole time? Um, And you're right. It is Abraham, but it's not yet. It's actually Abram right now. And we'll get to that. There's a couple of people in Scripture. It happens to be that Abram's wife, Sarai, is another one of those people. There's a few people throughout the Scriptures that actually get their names changed. Um, for particular reasons. And again, we'll talk more about that. So I might accidentally slip in and out of calling him Abram or Abraham, and please forgive me if I do that, but it it is the same guy. We're just not there yet. So his his name's Abram. And we started with this part, this introduction, and I I know it's kind of odd to read the, the father of the sons of the other sons and the wives. I'm like, why are we focusing on that? But one of the things that's interesting that we see as, as the author chooses to introduce Abram's story with this little bit of a genealogy, is that we see that Abram's kind of in a family that's in crisis. Now, you might not get that impression right away, but as you, as you read the story, we hear first off that Haran, Terah's son, and Abram's brother dies. Now, on, on the one hand, if you're just reading it as history, it's just a fact. But if you're thinking about the impact that that has on a family, you actually hear that in, in the story. The author says that, that Haran dies while his father, Terah, is still living. There's little as painful as bearing a child. Ancient culture aside, children aren't supposed to precede their parents in death. And so here we have Terah dealing with the loss of a son. We have Abram dealing with the loss of a brother. We have Lot dealing with the loss of a father. 
So there's, there's loss, there's tragedy. We, we have no idea how he died. We just know that he died. Too soon. Secondly, we hear that Sarai, Abram's wife, is not able to give birth. Now, many of you, or at least some of you, know what this is like. You've maybe personally struggled to, to conceive. You wanted really badly to have a child and, and weren't able to. And you know the, the frustration, the heartbreak, the disappointment that that brings. Maybe you know someone close to you who's had that painful experience. It's, if you haven't experienced it yourself or walked with someone through it, it's hard to imagine from the outside how difficult that can be for someone who desperately wants to have a child but can't. We get that. In this culture, that's amplified because not only is there this desire for Sarah to have a child, Sarai to have a child, but there's also the cultural expectations that come with it. As a woman, her role was to produce children for her husband. That's, that's what it was. The expectation was that she would bear children, and that would be a sign of the blessings of the gods on them. But she couldn't. And so undoubtedly, she lived with a sense of shame, a sense that she, she wasn't able to be who she was supposed to be, who she ought to be. But beyond that even, the whole reason why people had lots of children was because there was no kind of social safety net when you got old and needed help. Your children took care of you. They were your safety net. They were your 401k, right? This is why um, I had four kids, right? I, you know, we let them know early on, yeah, we're just, you know, we're just making sure that there's enough people to take care of us and the lifestyle that we need when, when we retire. So, um, but no, but that, was, that was how they ensured that they would be okay, is they had children who would be there for them when they got older. And the more kids they had, the more likely it would be that there'd be enough kids to take care of them. So Sarai not being able to conceive, you, you have the shame, you have the, the sadness, the heartache, but then there's also the uncertainty of the future. What's going to happen to us when we're at the place where we can't take care of ourselves anymore? Who's going to do that? This is the context that we enter the story in the midst of a family that's kind of in crisis, that's experiencing suffering. But the thing is, all good stories have elements of suffering. I'm sure you've noticed that, right? Like, have you ever come across a story or, or maybe a song or a movie that was just kind of, everything went well? Nothing, nothing bad happened. Everything perfect just lined up. If you have, you, there are songs like that out there, at least. They don't tend to be the songs that move you. They might have a, a fun beat. They might be kind of fun to listen to in the summer. But six months later, n nobody remembers that song. Why? Well, because it, it doesn't, doesn't speak to you. It doesn't say anything that's true. It might be fun, but it doesn't resonate. Because 
truth has to engage with the realities of pain and suffering because every story has them to different degrees of course but being alive means engaging with suffering at some level it means experiencing crisis this is why artists like Johnny Cash were so compelling because he didn't try to downplay that he actually lived into it in a way that felt honest and authentic this is why for millennia people have come back to the scriptures because they don't whitewash they don't kind of smooth over the difficulties the challenges the crises they engage with them fully and this is where we begin with Abram's story they're a family in crisis and then God shows up we're going to read in verse uh, I'm sorry starting chapter 12 where Abram meets the Lord for the first time Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household at Haran, and headed for the land of Canaan. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. So it's in, it's in the context of this suffering. The, the writer of Genesis kind of sets us up. He says, look, here's the family situation. Here's the challenges that he's facing. And then... God shows up and calls Abram to do this this new thing. But one thing to note about the new thing God invites Abram to is that it actually challenges further his future security. Not only does he not have any kids to take care of him in the future, traditionally he would kind of stick around with the family so that when the father got to a point where he would expect his kids to take care of him, there would be an inheritance, there would be land, there would be some of that, those basic things needed for him to be in a good position to take care of his family, but also to provide for himself. But because Abram leaves, he forfeits all of that. He forfeits the inheritance. He forfeits the, the land. No security. Nothing. I mean, what would have made the most sense in the moment would be for Abram to kind of double down and say, look, things aren't going great right here. We kind of need to figure this out. We just need to stay put and focus on on fixing this thing. But it's during this time of, of crisis when it makes the most sense for him to stay with what he knows that God calls Abram into something new. That it's in the midst of his struggle that he gets invited into a, a new journey, a new part of his story. This redemptive plan that God has to rescue people from ourselves, from our own rebellion, from our own selfishness, to to bring us back into right relationship with him and with one another begins with this guy who's in the middle of a crisis. 
And it's kind of counter to how we often expect God to work. Often, when we're in a crisis, the only thing we can think about is, how do you fix the crisis? How do we stop the bleeding? We go into triage, right? It's, it, you know, things are kind of go- not going well, and our only focus is, how do we fix this? How do we stop this? And most of the time, our relationship with God, if we have one, is predicated on asking God to fix it, to stop the crisis, to make it go the way that we think it ought to go. But for whatever reason, this isn't how God tends to work. Not that God doesn't ever show up in the midst of our crisis and change things. That does happen sometimes. But many times, it doesn't. Many times, God does not come and fix the problem. But often, it's in the midst of that crisis that we have opportunity for growth and for new things. That the stuff that feels like it's kind of burning down around us sometimes creates the fertile soil for something new, for growth and change, for us taking another step forward in who we were created to be. And, and you notice how Abram's call was actually related to his crisis, right? So part of his crisis was he's not going to have descendants who are going to take care of him. And what's the call from God? He says, leave this, leave all this security and go out in a way that seems very counterintuitive. And the result is going to be that you're going to have too many descendants to count. And those descendants are going to be a blessing to the whole world. That the way in which God wants to bring about something new in and through Abram is directly related to the crisis he's going through. That it's in the midst of that that this new life is growing for Abram and for the world. And this is often true for us in crisis. That even in the midst of the thing that's going badly, the the suffering that we're experiencing, it's in that that God is growing something in us that will enable us to live as a blessing for others. One of my favorite authors is Anne Lamont. She is, in a lot of ways, like Johnny Cash in terms of just her rawness. She's this, this kind of larger-than-life figure full of compassion and grace and wit and charm, but she's also a very flawed person who's really honest and open about her flaws. But as you, as you read her work, one of the things you notice is the places where Lamont most speaks to people are in the places where she's also experienced some of the deepest pain. Her first work of fiction, her first novel, I should say, was a book called Hard Laughter. She wrote Hard Laughter when her father was diagnosed with brain cancer. And she wrestled with the impact that would have on her life. Her first uh, bestseller was a book called Operating Instructions, which was about... Uh, being a mom. But she wrote that based on her experience as a single mother whose boyfriend had abandoned her when she got pregnant. And it was out of that experience, out of that pain, that she wrote this book that spoke so honestly about the ups and downs of being a new mom and what it meant to try and be a single parent. 
She's someone who has struggled with addiction, who's battled addiction for years. She talks openly and honestly about that in her book, in a way that's, in her books, in a way that's candid and refreshing, and calls out hope when you're struggling against something, and it keeps rearing its ugly head again and again. It's in the places where she has experienced crisis and pain and suffering that there have been, there's been new life that has grown that she's been able to use to offer as a blessing for others. And this is what we see God do in Abram, and it's what we see God do in us. Lamont wrote in one of her more recent books, a book called Help, Thanks, Wow. It's about prayer. She writes this. She says, If we stay where we are, where we're stuck, where we're comfortable and safe, we die there. We become like mushrooms living in the dark with poop up to our chins. If you want to know only what you already know, you're dying. You're saying, leave me alone. I don't mind this little rat hole. It's warm and dry. Really, it's fine. When nothing new can get in, that's death. When oxygen can't find a way in, you die. But new is scary, and new can be disappointing and confusing. We had this all figured out, and now we don't. New is life. I, I love that, that line, that new is life. That sometimes it's in the midst of the most uncertainty, the most unknown aspect of life where we step into something new, that we experience the fullness of life, that we experience the next stage in our growth that God wants to lead us on. That we can't do that if we stay stuck. And when we suffer... When we, when we face crises and all we can do is look at, our own, look at our own issues, lick our wounds, think about you know, how sad it is that we're going through this. And I'm not trying to lessen the impact of suffering. Some of you have suffered tremendously. But if all we can do is look internally, we stay stuck. We don't grow. We don't move forward the invitation to be open to the new thing in the midst of crisis is an invitation to growth and new life. Life that will ultimately be a blessing, not just to us, but to many others. And this, kind of, this reality shouldn't really surprise us because we see this in the life of Jesus. We see this character of who God is loud and clear in Jesus. Who experiences the ultimate crisis, death, on a cross. And God brings resurrection life. He brings Jesus back to life from the dead so that all of us can experience life with him. That, that moment of crisis, that death, was the source of life for all. And even in the midst of our crisis, God is at work in bringing about that same kind of resurrection, that life, that opportunity for us to grow and move forward. I think this is some of what Jesus was talking about when he says this in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. He said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Now, of course, part of what Jesus is doing there is foreshadowing his own death. 
But he's also pointing to this reality that comes as we walk with God. This, this sense in which even in death, God is there to invite us into new life, to invite us into this next step of our journey of growth in relationship with him and others. Where even in the darkest situations, there's something new that God wants to grow in us. There's some invitation into new life if we're open to it and if we're willing to respond. And those places will often be the place that we are most empowered to offer a blessing to others. That's the well we'll be able to go back from to offer something that others need, to bless many other people. So if we're going through suffering, crises, challenge, how do, we, how do we know what the invitation to new life is? How, how do we pay attention to that? Um, a couple of thoughts about that as we wrap things up before we move into a time of communion. <clears throat> there's no, you know, there, there's no like formula to this. It's different for everyone. And again, suffering is real and it's difficult. And there, there, there's a length of time that it takes. It's different for everyone. So I don't want to say like this is the formula, just do it. But I think there are some things that can help us listen well to the invitations God is giving us in suffering. The first one. If you're going through, whether it's a big crisis or a little one, take some time to journal, to write down your experience. I know you don't feel like you have time to sit down and be reflective when you're going through crises, but it's probably one of the most important times to actually be reflective, to pay attention, because as you're going through this crisis, if you are open to what God might be doing, you are, you are going to grow. You're going to change. You're going to move forward. But sometimes we don't notice it because the growth happens so incrementally. It happens within us in a way. It's kind of like, you know, if you have kids and before you know it, they're like taller than you. But you don't notice the day it happens, right? It's not like you wake up one morning and you're like, yesterday I had six inches on you and today I'm smaller, right? Like it's, it's just, it's incremental. But but it happens slowly, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day. This is how change happens in our life, even in the midst of crisis. But particularly in crisis, in these challenges, in these, even in changes, even in places where it doesn't feel like the world's falling apart, but there's lots of, lots of opportunity for new risks. These are places where we tend to grow if we're open to God's invitation to life. And so I would encourage you, as you're going through difficulty, whether it's a huge thing or even just a, a challenge, a, a tiny risk, a transition you're experiencing, write down what your experience is, write down what you're learning, write down, pay attention to what you feel like God might be saying, and go back and reflect on that regularly. My guess is you'll begin to notice threads, things that you're learning, ways that you're changing, things that you're now finding yourself open to or thinking differently about, that by the end you may be able to look back and be like, I, I think that was actually God saying something to me or God leading me in a particular way. So write it down. Take, take a journal. Secondly, if you're going through a difficult time of crisis, meet regularly with someone who you consider wiser than you. Generally speaking, it would be someone kind of older, uh, but not necessarily, but someone who you think has some wisdom, has some experience. They won't have answers to give you, particularly if, if, if they're really wise. They, they won't bother to try to fix your problem for you, 
but they might be able to share some things that they've learned. And it's likely that in those conversations, you'll hear some things that God might want to say to you. Often those are some of the most clear places where God speaks to us in some of those kind of mentoring relationships. So meet regularly with someone who's wiser than you, older than you, who's been down that path, at least something like your path before. And then finally, be actively looking for opportunities to be a blessing to others, even if you're suffering. Again, our tendency when we're struggling, when things are in crisis mode, or when things are just difficult, is to just focus on us, on, on the pain that we're experiencing. And again, at, at some level, that's important. But it can't all be inward-focused. If we're attentive to the, the opportunities that exist outside of us, we'll find life, even in the midst of our struggles, as we look to offer hope, life, meaning, friendship to those around us who are struggling. It's remarkable how many people, when they go through difficult times, find that their most rich and meaningful times in the midst of that crisis was found when they began looking outside of themselves at how they could care for others, even as they were suffering, even as they were struggling. That in that, they realized they actually, even in their weakest moments, had something to offer someone else that would be a blessing. And it was incredibly meaningful and empowering to them. Encourage them to keep moving forward. So even in the midst of your suffering, look for ways you can be a blessing to others. Father, thank you that even in the midst of our, our suffering, even in the midst of hardship and crisis that we face, that you are regularly inviting us into new things, into new life. Would you help us to be attentive to your voice? Would you help us, even as we reflect on the death and resurrection of Christ, to trust you in new ways to bring life into our lives in whatever place that we're in, in whatever, whatever crisis, whatever challenge, whatever transition we're facing, would you help us to look to you and to the new life that you're offering us? Give us ears to hear what you're saying. Give us wise friends to walk with us. Give us opportunities to use our gifts to be a blessing to others so that we can join you in your redemptive work that you're doing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.